0: I don't think I was prepared I have to say David I mean it 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 was it was really hard I was taken straight into the midst of people's lives that were so traumatized and chaotic um, and I you know I come from a kind of middle-class background I put my hand up and say you know this this was not my world um, and it really opened my eyes I think and humbled me to see how people supported one another and survived with uh with such trauma and and chaos surrounding them
1: hi i'm naomi murphy and this is the locked up living podcast where we talk with a wide range of people about harsh aspects of institutional life
2: we also explore some of the ways to overcome them and to grow and develop i'm david jones so join us every wednesday morning Six o'clock UK time for a fresh podcast.
1: Today's guest is Karen Stallard. After starting her career as an actor, Karen became a member of the Clergy before training as an art psychotherapist. Karen also founded the Jeff Ashcroft Community in Tower Hamlets, which is a specialist mental health project, and she's been a board member for various charities, including Crossroads Counselling Service, Margins Homelessness Project, and the Union Chapel Project. She's also chair for a biannual conference, Continuing the Journey, which provides training to therapists and spiritual leaders. She's the director for Child Counselling Skills Certificate at Institute for Arts in Therapy and Education, and she's also, and usually, the designer of 20 Dreams, a game that promotes creative and emotional intelligence. Really pleased to have Karen on today. I've known Karen for many years, and it's really nice to get to have a more formal conversation with you.
0: I nice. It's lovely to be invited. Thanks for inviting me and yeah fascinating podcast that you have with an amazing range of speakers so it's a real privilege to, to be here today and and to have a chat about stuff.
2: Hi Can, really nice to meet you and a fascinating uh, CV you've, you've got there. Looking forward to hearing a bit more about it. So before you Trained as an art therapist, Karen, you were a Baptist minister, as I understand it. Can you tell us a little bit about how this role prepared you for working more directly within mental health?
0: Um, I could speak for hours, David, on this. I mean, I grew up in the Baptist church. um, And so my experience of church has been a mixture of just amazing kind of support for people with mental health but also a kind of horrific uh, view of how untrained and and how the church in general um really doesn't know what it's doing um with people with severe mental health issues as well so so yeah as I grew up in in my Baptist Church I had a, a close family member who suffered from um psychosis um and you know i witnessed the church just not knowing what to do um with this person who was coming along to church and um and expressing all sorts of strange behaviors and views um and so that there was that side of it where i was sort of despairing thinking surely we should be um progressive and we should be knowing our stuff with this not trying to cast out demons and um you know telling people that they're depressed it's because it's they've done something wrong you know that sort of really old school stuff so there's that part of it which sparked my interest because i thought you know as as people of faith we we should be ones you know leading the way in in terms of how to be community for these people um, so there was that side of it but also um i realized that churches provided sanctuary um in for want of a better word for people with mental health issues because um, the communities were open for anyone to wander in and have a chat and um, that sense of uh, inclusiveness and welcome which actually many churches do have contrary to what popular belief is um, provides a a way in which somebody who's very isolated um, in the world to feel like they belong um, and can be a part of and also you know recognition that rituals and ancient scriptures and and all of that kind of side of things is incredibly therapeutic for for somebody who needs to regulate Um, and so that the church for me I I found personally the church provided a space where I could um, uh, deal with my trauma um, through Meditation, prayer, ritual, um, and that—that that was super helpful. So, yeah. So my experience within the church and and as a Baptist minister was one of, of thinking, well, the church could be a really wonderful place. <laughs> However, sometimes it's not. So, um, yeah, that's that was the beginning of my journey in exploring uh, mental health and spirituality.
2: Did you develop those initiatives yourself, or was it something that that the church encouraged you to do?
0: Um I think it was my own self-interest really that started off my work. I was working in Tower Hamlets at the time. Um, um but the church was was encouraging it. So it was because I was working particularly for a church that was looking at new ways of being church and trying to be more uh, culturally contextual and, and all of that kind of stuff. So the church kind of said, yeah, go for it. This, this sounds really interesting. And so I immersed myself uh, into the kind of world of um, the mental health provision in Tower Hamlets. I, I got a job uh, for the East London and City mental health trust um as a spiritual and cultural care coordinator and i just got to know people in the community who were struggling with their mental health um and in that we we decided that the thing that was really missing i suppose for them was a safe community space that would accept them even when they were really not very well at all um that would allow them to come in and do activities and and eat with other people and uh, make conversations and allow people to be where they're at. Um, yeah, so it was a kind of the church, it was, it was a bit of a new initiative, I think, which I was driving, um, partly out of desperation because I was realizing that some of the more mainstream churches, uh, these people just couldn't stay in them. You know, they were being ostracized again because perhaps their behavior was not acceptable or something like that. And um, So it was a real drive to try and find a space that was safe, uh, felt safe, and allowed people to come and go as they wanted, um, and be in a community, as it were.
2: So I've worked in East London myself. I worked in Homerton, which I suppose is adjacent to Tower Hamlets, isn't it? Mm. I remember it as being a very challenging uh, area, um, particularly if you worked in the community like you're uh, describing so what was what was in your background that uh, prepared you for that kind of work?
0: (laughs) Um, So I don't think I was prepared I think I was very ill-equipped and I started off working in a way that was very unbounded really and quite unsafe for my own mental health Um, and it, it led me down a path of of really reflecting and considering what what training do we need um, or does the church need in order to be able to work with folk who um, live on the edges, I suppose, of our communities and struggle to to find a place in them. Um, And yeah, I suppose my my upbringing did prepare me in a way in that, that I had a mother who suffered from quite severe depression at times and my other family member who was very severely ill um, and got quite psychotic at times. So, in that sense, I was, my childhood experience gave me my own training, but otherwise I was totally ill equipped. And, and it's, um, it's something that I feel very passionate about now that we need, you know, we need our community workers to particularly be trained in trauma, trauma awareness. Um, if they want to reach out and to to be able to be uh, in relationship with folk that are really struggling, they need to know their staff, really, in order to be able to self-regulate and cope, cope with it all themselves.
1: It seems like religious ministers often end up plugging the gaps of formal services, don't they? And certainly we did a podcast previously um, with uh, Michael Hasler and and Byron Johnson, where they were talking about all the work that religious ministers do in prison and how they end up supporting quite vulnerable people. But you're right; if there isn't the training on trauma and mental health, there's a danger that people are then overwhelmed and flooded with with um, hmm. you know d- distress that they're, they're not equipped to manage.
0: Yeah, and I think that was definitely my experience of. Um, people, workers in church getting burnt out very quickly, uh, not knowing what to do with the material that, that the, the people coming through their doors was presenting then. And also not knowing how to keep themselves safe, um, you know, from aggression and violence and behaviour that um, was quite threatening at times. Um, and i think my experience when i worked in Tower Hamlets was very much of being immersed in this experiencing oh my gosh um people you know banging on my window at night and stuff like that and and i thought this is crazy We're, what are we doing here um uh, how can we continue to work in a way that's that feels safe for everybody and um stops the the person who's Perhaps behaving uh, chaotically from being ostracised from the community because of that, and that's that's really why we set up the Jeff Ashcroft community to to create um, you know a, a boundary, safe space where people came at a certain time, left at a certain time. There were rules. There were there were kind of agreed community ways of being. Um, and it was a sense of uh, there was no one leading this thing it was it, the whole community made the decisions as to what was going to happen and how it was going to happen and um yeah and that that took some consideration as to how we manage and deal with um sort of some of the face offs that we used to have and we i mean we we were working with ex offenders um people with he, terrible uh, childhood um, experiences that they carried into their adulthood um, and many many addicts um, of varying degrees so we you know we had we had a kind of works coming into the community um, and it was wonderful once we'd set it up you know we, and there were, there, were, there were things we did which which meant it, it, it felt very boundaried and controlled. And using the arts was, was incredibly important in that because it gave people an activity and something that's, that could regulate, help regulate them and calm them down and give them something to do. They didn't have to talk that, you know, it was a, having art activities was, was a key ingredient in, in that don't know whether that answered your question. Well,
2: yeah, partly, but there's a lot more to say. I think uh, there's so much already in what you've said because you've developed so many uh, uh, initiatives. I'm, I'm fascinated in this idea of uh, lack of boundaries um, and its possible connection with creativity. Um, and then you're kind of suggesting that the Jeff Ashcroft community developed out of a kind of uh, unbounded condition. I'd be interested to hear what you can say about that a bit more.
0: Yeah, I mean, it, it, so I was working for a, a kind of church organisation that was was very unbounded, actually, and that we didn't have a church building. Um, so we met in the homes and, uh, you know, we were inviting people from the community to come into our houses to worship and to... Um, Be together and be in community together, Um, which is a wonderful idea because it it sort of gives people an experience of uh, family and that hopefully is is something that they might never have experienced and and really wonderful in that way. But of course, it caused loads of problems as well, because you get all the family dynamics being played out um, and uh, and all the different family systems that everyone's bringing uh flying around in the ether and and yeah we we were just thinking what we really need is we do need a space where people can come where people can um feel like they belong uh do some group work because we recognize that actually um people grow and develop best in a group that accepts them and and helps them feel belong like they belong Um, and it all had to be done incredibly um in a way where there was an open door so you know people chose to come in as well so a bit different from the, the statutory services where it you, was sort of like um all about choice and giving people choice to do or not to do and um and activities I mean all the all of these things are really important and playfulness it's massively important for people to have a space where they can have a laugh and and it's not all deadly serious, and that they can come and and kind of if they're really super stressed, they can come in and offload and um and then sit down and play a game or something I mean these sound like little things, but they're not they're big they're big things in terms of helping somebody down regulate enough to relate to the person next to them um and and then they can start to to support one another as a community so that's uh, that's what we were trying to create (laughs) and we recognize the weakness in the church structure is is that if you if you go to church and it's a church service um there's all sorts of problems really because you can't scream and shout you can't yell you can't throw things you're not allowed um you have to conform There's structure which can be very containing and helpful but it doesn't necessarily provide a space in which people can really get to know each other and support one another Um, so yeah we were trying to kind of bring I suppose bring back the more community-based type uh, types of church that um, uh, can contain and and carry uh, members of the community even when they're in distress.
2: It sounds uh, fascinating but it sounds as if it wasn't just the church that was uh, lacking but uh, Statutory services were as well, so you were obviously having to fill some of the gaps in the uh, statutory services.
0: Well, I mean, this is the problem. I think is that you know we have this revolving door thing going on, which I think happens in 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 all sorts of different services. Um, and and I was working in the hospitals. So I was seeing the same people come back again. And, you know, over the seven years that I worked there, it was like they'd they'd come in for six months, be really ill, and then they'd get better, and then they go back out into the community. And, and then six months later they'd come back in again. And and and, and then on talking to them and, and sort of uh seeing what was happening, it you know, it was there was a sense of um. Had certain things been in place, they might not have spiralled back to the extent with their mental health in order to be, you know, sectioned um, onto the wards. Um, And most of it was isolation, you know. And I I remember one one person I was chatting to in the canteen, she was eating her apple um, and she just said, Karen, Karen, we're the forgotten ones. We're the forgotten ones. And She munched on her apple, and that really struck me as she ate her apple. And I was sitting there with her in the canteen. And I thought, yeah, you're right, nobody really remembers you until you're back in the ward. And then it's like, oh, it's you again. But out in the community, lost, lost. There's there's no space. Um, and particularly for those folk who get very depressed and, and isolate themselves um in their in their flats. So yeah, so I think there is, the statutory services are obviously hugely stretched, but they work on a medical model. Um, and the medical model is is really about medicating. It's about giving the person the right treatment in terms of medicine, perhaps a little bit of, of therapeutic treatment on the side um, if you're lucky, but that's that's never the priority. And then you get better and you're, you're put back out in the community. But actually, what what folk really need is support, and uh, and it's hugely missing. Partly because of the nature of the mental illnesses, is people often push away support or um or hide away from support when they're when they're not very well. So so yes, if we if we could establish a community which is always there. <laughs> And it's always welcoming. mean, you try and get people involved in the community when they're feeling well enough, not when they're, they're too ill, but they need to be feeling well. And then when they start to get ill, you then have that support network that c- perhaps could help um, de-escalate and allow somebody to remain out of hospital or out of prison or whatever's going to happen or, or off the streets, as it were. Thank
1: you. And do you think that being part of the faith-based community meant that the projects could cater for needs that couldn't be met by non-faith-based services?
0: I think, I mean, that's an interesting question because I don't think you have to be a person of faith to set up a project that can meet the needs of of people. However, I think that and, and there's more awareness now of... Uh, the usefulness of things like meditation and mindfulness and uh, spirituality and rootedness and how important it is for people to to have those aspects um, kind of in their life uh, so I think that's that's what faith communities can offer is they offer a narrative that's that's ancient um, which can be hugely helpful for people that perhaps don't don't quite know where they've come from and 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 then they can be invited to come and join into um, something which has um, all sorts of metaphors, stories, deep meaning, um, that type of thing. So I think faith-based communities can offer that. But other communities could as well. They just need to figure out how to do it. I suppose the church has been doing it for centuries and so, so knows how to do it. I mean, it's basic things like singing songs together that tell stories um, a huge, that's hugely rooting and calming and connecting. Um, and particularly the Christian church does that really, really well, um, but meditation, and it doesn't have to be Christian at all. I mean, any, the Buddhist traditions are really popular now because people recognize actually it's really soothing and calming. To meditate every day, and um, so these type of activities uh, are very, very beneficial for for mental health. and And I think the church has an ancient tradition of them, um, and and other religions do too. And they're really helpful, um, and could be used a lot more um, in providing people space to regulate, contemplate, prayer, meditation, um, whatever practice. Um, Feels helpful and beneficial.
1: From talking, I was wondering as well about whether faith-based communities can play an important role in terms of identity, because I think often people with mental health problems end up with a an, an identity that's really formed around what they what they can't do or about their struggles. I'm wondering whether religion might give people a different aspect of their identity that that could offer them something positive um, beyond some of their other identities?
0: I think absolutely it can. I think um, religion at its best is uh, providing people with a a historic narrative that they can be a part of, um, which is hugely meaningful. And um, and belonging to a bunch of people that have a hope, um, belonging to an organisation which is built around perceiving hu- all human beings as being, you know, good. I mean, obviously, it depends on your theology around here, but there's something about acceptance and um, fresh starts, uh, I think. Pretty much all the religions are about, you know, growth and development and renewal and um, giving everyone a second chance and, and all of that sort of thing. And the best religions, uh, the best bits of religion have, have all of that a part of it. And that's incredibly liberating for somebody who's had a life script of, of being told they're bad, they're wrong, they're evil, all of that type of thing um i mean obviously it does depend on the theology that's coming out of it I'm not, and the christian church has some terrible terrible uh theology which has caused huge problems um and i'm not advocating that i think that's something we need to get rid of that <laughs> you know because that's not going to help people at all but i think the core of uh, if you look at the core basis of of most faiths that it's built on um encouraging human beings to to flourish and and that's wonderful
1: thank you and uh, changing tacks slightly, you you've subsequently trained as an art therapist why did you decide to train in this therapeutic modality as opposed to another another model of, of therapy
0: uh well i think it was very personal in that i'm i've always been a creative soul um and i think what I did was was I decided that I needed to um do more creativity, do more artwork. And so I did a, a year foundation course in art therapy just because I thought, well, it would help me start making art again. Um and that's kind of how I got into it. And um and then I realized that actually this this was definitely where I was meant to head anyway. Um and, and I think the arts going back to this idea of boundaries and containment. Um, the arts provide an extraordinary way in which we can look at some of our greatest fears and some of our biggest shadows uh, in a way that's contained, that's safe, that we can begin to be curious about. Um, and I think that that can then allow uh, so our inner um, worlds to be seen and witnessed, um, valued, appreciated, um, and and we can begin to be compassionate towards ourselves, I think, using the arts in a way that um, talking therapies I, I don't think can quite get there in the same way. And it's purely to do with the left and right hemisphere of the brain and, and how the arts just tap straight into that right hemisphere. Uh, where the emotions are all kind of activated. And, um, yeah, and it's extraordinary how the unconscious can reveal itself so dramatically and beautifully just with an image. Um, So I fell in love with it when I did the foundation year and carried on to do a master's. um, And then realised that actually, um, having trained as a psychotherapist, I can actually do the work that I always really wanted to do. with with folk um very contained very creative um and uh you know just being in a room with somebody talking about meaningful things um is is a wonderful privilege so yes i feel like i've landed finally uh into into a career that that matches my uh desires to be connected with human beings in a deep way so yeah
1: how, how do you think your um initial um the, your initial role as a religious minister has strengthened your um, what you bring as an art therapist because presumably you you do that you do that job that role in a slightly different way than someone who perhaps doesn't have that background
0: i think it it's like anything really i think I find that people have permission to talk about their spirituality with me, um, whereas they might be a little bit anxious with somebody that that perhaps doesn't have a a background um, in faith. So, um, it, it, it I just it it opens the field out, um, and you know, I'm, and I'm somebody who is very curious about. Um, how we connect with one another in a way that we don't understand which i think is what religion's all about really is trying to, to kind of put we just put language we put religious language to it don't we but we we need to feel deeply connected to one another and to the earth and to the universe somehow and um, that always comes out really in in the work you know there's something very existential about uh therapeutic work and the arts as well um, there's always that existential arm of of the unknown and the mysteries and and our greatest fears perhaps lodged in in death and life and what is meaning and who we are so i think having knowledge of faith communities of different you know i worked interfaith as well for a long period of time has opened me up to to be very curious and very happy to listen to people's own understanding and view of the world, uh, whether it be from a point of um, not believing there's any anything beyond the here and now to uh, people of all sorts of different faiths. And, and I think that the therapy space should be a, a space where we can talk about these things and explore and be curious and expand our minds. Yeah. So I think my background does help. And a number of folk, um, deliberately come to see me because, because I'm a person of faith and they know that they can talk freely about their beliefs without feeling like um, they're going to be told they're delusional or, or something like that.
1: You're also co-chair of the biannual conference Continuing the Journey which provides continued professional development to people who are therapists and spiritual leaders but why, why was there a need for this conference?
0: Uh, this i mean this conference has been going on for quite a number of years now i think it was set up in 1986 um and uh, the history of the relationship between particularly in this uh, country the christian church and the counseling world has been a bit rocky really they they not they didn't used to talk to one another very much you know the the christians were very wary of the freudian analysts that saw phallic symbols everywhere and thought that was terrible and the analysts hated the christians because they were believing in something that was ridiculous and um uh not not helping people at all in terms of delusional sort of ways of thinking and and so these two worlds kind of lived quite separate lives i think um and then there were some psychotherapists and some church uh, clergy people we got together and said, that we need to start joining the dots here because we're basically, um, you know, trying to achieve the same goals here. We're, we're working towards human um, wholeness, um, enlightenment, whatever you want to call it, development, growth. Um, and the psychotherapy world has so much to offer the church um, and the church has so much to offer world of psychotherapy now things have moved on a lot since 1986 i think and the whole area of spirituality has been integrated a lot better into the world of psychotherapy um but the church seems to have a little way to go as well in terms of integrating some of the knowledge and the wealth of knowledge that's come through um the the psychology world and so this what this conference tries to do every two years we all get together five days Um, we have some amazing speakers um, but really it's a mixture of clergy people and therapists and we talk, we discuss, we explore issues and themes that are incredibly relevant I think to today's society um, in a way that um, uses um, the Christian scriptures and faith traditions but also integrates uh the most contemporary kind of thoughts and thinking in the, the world of psychology so it's fascinating and every year every time I go it's it's like a little bit mind-blowing <laughs> um uh, because it's just a wonderful combination that that really works um and it's a, a journey we we tend to journey together as well so people go back year and year to the conference so it's like a little community that's formed uh, over the years and um we get to know each other and and support one another uh, in our work together.
1: Sounds like it could be a valuable resource for somebody who um draws on both both um philosophical um learnings really so we'll include a, a link to that in our in our show mm. notes for anyone who's who's interested in that but part of your work has also involved trying to support schools in becoming more trauma-informed can you can you tell us a bit about this work?
0: Yeah, I'm, more recently I've had the privilege of uh, doing a bit of work for Trauma-Informed Schools UK, which is an organisation um, founded by Margot Sunderland, who, who's the Director of the Institute of Therapy and, and the Arts. And she's, um, she's very passionate about the fact that if, if a child has at least one emotionally available adult, in their lives it can change the course of of their life change their trajectory um, significantly um and the research shows this that um a child can have have to deal with some terrible stuff you know really difficult things but if they'd have one emotionally available adult who's there for them then that can really help them in their development um and cause them to go on and and live their life and and negotiate life's obstacles. If they don't, however, we know that actually it means that this child's gonna grow into an adult who's gonna struggle, struggle in relationships, perhaps with addictions, um, struggle with anger management, potentially end up in in prison. Um, And there are, you know, the stories that I hear, and the adults that i treat you know absolutely this is all about the fact that they didn't have somebody with them to process something terrible that had happened to them um so trauma-informed schools is is basically what it is really is, is we're trying to create a little army of teachers who um, have the skills to be able to spot a child in distress and to be emotionally available for them and enable that child hopefully to be able to uh, regulate and i mean it works with we call it p in the three r's protect regulate relate and reflect so the idea is we train teachers in in the therapeutic art of enabling a human being to reflect and um, and if if they can do that with a child in the school and, and the schools become the only space sometimes that these children have that feel safe and often schools don't feel safe for lots of reasons. So we, if that's the first thing is to get the school feeling safe to protect the child, but then to um, enable the schools to help children develop that art of reflection, that reflective practice, so that as they go on to to become adults and they have these awful feelings that come from um, adverse childhood experiences, that they're able to reflect on it and, and to see. And regulate and to get the help they need when they need it so that's the the work we do we we run a um, an 11 day training like a diploma which um, teachers come on the training is run by um, a combination of a teacher and a therapist So we always try and combine the two and they're a home group so I'm I'm very much involved in running the home group so I'm I sort of uh, teach the teachers how to listen empathically and we practice it together and uh, we do all of that sort of wonderful um, therapy training, I suppose, um, in that setting. Um, but it's a really exciting project to be a part of and we're, uh, we're so grateful for these teachers that are interested and and, and it's amazing because they come on the training and they say, why weren't we taught this we were trained? And I'm like, I know you weren't and you should be. But um, what a difference it would make, and um, not just to the children, but actually to the teachers, because it, they don't know what to do. You have a child come in and, and throw chairs around in the classroom. They, they, they don't know how to deal with this child, whereas this training will really give them the tools to know um, how to manage and help that child regulate.
1: It's Margot Sunderland, also an author, because her name is it. Um, I think she's she written several books about emotions that which oh. I think are actually pitched at children, but I have used them with adults. Uh, there's one in particular, I can't, the name escapes me now, but there's one in particular about being macho um, and hiding your vulnerability with this macho shell mm. on the outside. Um, but they're really cleverly written and in a way that actually I think even you know. I managed to get adult males interested in in these books, where um, you know recognize that actually that's what their child parts needed when they were much younger.
0: Mm. Yeah, that's right. So she's she's written a number of books that are very useful um, working with children and adults, and also some some theory books as well, which are uh, very much based around how using storytelling, the arts, creativity. Um, but uh, giving that is all about uh, helping children to put language to their emotions mm-hmm. and how important that is that once we can begin to to say, this is what's happening for me, um then we can start to release that energy um out of our system. And yeah, so she's got she's got sort of wonderful resources which I use all the time called emotion cards. Um, which is a big set of cards um, and you can get them for young children, teenagers. And then there's kind of basic ones you can use with adults. And they're brilliant because they're images and there are some words with them, but it's the images we work with. It's like pick the images that uh, you can relate to here. And then we talk about the images and how um, what that evokes for the person. And they're a wonderful resource to have really in your toolkit. Again, it's putting language to words, um, uh, which is so important in the
2: art of reflection. So perfect uh, segue there, Karen, because somewhat unusually, uh, you've also developed a card game uh, called 20 Dreams. I think it's called 20 Dreams. Can you tell us about that and why you did that?
0: Yeah, 20 Dreams (laughs) is... is uh, um, an an extraordinary outcome of lockdown um <laughs> it's one of the the projects we decided to do my partner wanted to do something a little bit different and to try and uh see if we could start something from sc- scratch um a little business project as it were and, and we were trying to rack our brains to think of of what to do we were sort of thinking about um eco-friendly washing up brushes and all sorts of things like that um and then and then she said oh why don't we why don't we uh um, develop a game you're good at games Karen come on um and so I said okay then no pressure I said okay in in those wonderful days where we had loads of time on our hands um and so we started trying to think up a, a concept that might work um and I've always loved games I've loved all sorts of games I've always been a game player um I like all the strategy ones I love chess I love scrabble and all that sort of thing but I've also always loved the creative games like give me charades any day and I'll I'll be well away and I thought gosh what you know can we create a game that sort of combines a little bit of both somehow that feels like somebody who likes chess could play it but also allows those people that hate the competitive strategy j- games to play something that they really enjoy. Um, so that was kind of where I, I started thinking about using images um, and trying to have a game that really works the right hemisphere um, rather than the, the very strategic left hemisphere. And, um, and then I, I literally had a dream so I did, I dreamt, I was trying to problem solve what game we were going to have. And I had a dream about a game that was a, a game with images um, and it talked about feelings because, of course, dreams are all about feelings. So, um, so I woke up with, with the last night I had a dream and I woke up feeling. And that's where the concept of the game came from. Um, and then we started developing it and the idea was to have um, images so you create your own imaginary dream story, but the the game is everybody has to guess what the feeling is behind the story. So you're not allowed to say the feeling. So it might be happy. You can't say I was happy. I'm not allowed to say the word happy. But everyone else, you tell the story, and everyone else has to, has to say, well, the feeling of that story is happy, um, and then they all get points. So it's um it's hilarious. It's ridiculous. Um, and it's we've discovered as we've played it actually with different people it's a wonderful way of people getting to know each other um and it's also a game which actually young people can play just as well as old people <laughs> there's no sort of you know you, doesn't matter how old you are you'll still still be able to do it as long as you understand what the emotion word means so you've got to be old old enough to know what happy means to be able to play the game really um, yeah so that's that's kind of where it emerged and then we we went for the challenge of doing a kickstarter and raised some money and got the game actually produced um, and it's now on the market which is a real achievement I think um, but yeah we we're just going to see where it goes from now on really um, but I think the key thing about it that we realized is it's quite a unique game in that it does um, really uh, play on the imagination as being the key part of of what this game is all about and also is asking people to think about feelings and emotions, um, which is very rare in in the gaming world. So um, we think it's a bit unique. It might put people off a bit, but uh, we're quite happy to have produced it and it's out there.
2: Sounds fascinating. Uh, Sounds as if it might require a degree of courage to uh, play it. But um, I'm also thinking that anyone who's worked in forensics knows that one of the uh, important tasks one has is helping people to identify feelings other than rage and distress. And it sounds as if this game could well have a part to play there.
0: Yeah, I think it, it really does. I mean, it's a, we're, there are 20 emotions and you don't get to choose what emotion you have to express. And so, yeah, it's, it's, it's quite interesting. If somebody doesn't have a wide emotional repertoire, they might need a little bit of help to know, you know, what does surprise look like? Um, they, they might tell a story where somebody bashes somebody else over the head with a stick. Um, and everyone else is going well that's violent isn't it and and they go no my my name was surprised and it gives you a way in which you can sort of um, in a really light-hearted way explore how we all experience emotions very differently and we might have different words for it so it's yeah and it's great to be uh, I've got some other colleagues that use it quite regularly in their therapy sessions just as a kind of icebreaker and as a bit of fun, but also to to kind of get to know one another a little bit and explore the different uh, emotional words and and what that might look like in a story.
2: Thank you. So you, you mentioned the importance of play earlier on, I think. So do you think games are undervalued in terms of their ability to impact on mental health and emotional well-being?
0: Totally undervalued. I mean... I just I I think obviously somebody needs to be regulated enough to be able to sit down and play a game, but actually games themselves are very regulating, um, and I think you know we uh, creating twenty dreams has meant that we have come in contact with a lot of the gaming world, and I've been really I'm really respectful of them actually it's amazing you know people that get involved in things like Dungeons and Dragons, all the strategy games the role playing games. What's happening there is they are, it's a bit like church in a way. You know, they're belonging to a society, a community that accepts them. They're able to use their imagination and their brains. It's, it fully engages them. It's very calming and regulating. Sometimes it, they flip out if they lose, you know, but you know, there's always that element of it. But it's brilliant. And if if you think about it, play is a natural way of us working out trauma you know children just do it normally naturally on the playground The things that distress them comes out in their play and somehow we seem to forget to use it as adults Um, and I think it's very very important for us to begin to reintegrate play into our lives I mean Brené Brown and her research um, clearly shows that people that she describes as wholesome people spend time playing Um, you know they potter and they play um, which is basically an act- activity that doesn't really achieve much, but is enjoyable. Um, and and I think this is something we need to have in our everyday lives as much as possible because we're too stressed pretty much all the time. Um, and uh, some of the guys I, I used to work in the community that were, they were uh, life sentences and they'd been released out. Honestly, playing Scrabble with them, I was going to lose because... They, you know, Scrabble, playing Scrabble and chess in the prisons was one of their highlights and was incredibly important to them. I remember playing this one chap. He loved thrashing me. He was so brilliant. I thought I was good at Scrabble, but oh, my goodness, he was amazing. And that's because he spent 18 years playing it <laughs> and with some of the brightest minds um, in our country. And um, yeah, and that was a wonderful thing to be able to play Scrabble with him. He's unfortunately he's died now, but I'll always remember that game of Scrabble.
1: Yeah, I think we probably all had those experiences of getting utterly thrashed at Scrabble and <laughs> chess <laughs> with people who spent a lot of a lot of time playing playing those activities. So Karen you've worked with people during some of the darkest moments of their lives and I imagine your faith has been a source of nourishment during that time but wondered if there are any other things you practice that keep you emotionally healthy.
0: Um, I'm always wondering that as well what, what more can I do to keep my um, myself emotionally healthy. Um, what do I do well this summer I've been swimming I can't I think that's wonderful activity um, open in the reservoir so open water swimming. And that's incredibly good for my system. I seem to just feel better because of it. And I think a lot of people say that. Um, I've been doing uh, pottery, which is a new activity that I absolutely adore. And I can't tell you what it's like working with clay. It's something very grounding. And I think it's connected to biophilia. It's that sense of being in nature, with nature, one with nature. And when you work with clay, you're working with with the earth and it responds in a very organic way. Um, And I find that incredibly calming and soothing and exciting as well, particularly when you glaze it and you don't know what it's gonna come out looking like. Um, It's very exciting. So those types of activities are hugely important for me. Um, But as always, relating, socializing, meeting with friends, um, food is incredibly important um for me to eat well and healthily and just those basic things really and I do I confess I play at the moment I'm a little bit addicted to playing a game where I on my phone where I empty color of water color is colored water into test tubes and have to sort all the colors out so sorting games I find incredibly um therapeutic in between clients I can think about the client and then i'm doing this and it's very calming so those types of games i think um i find really helpful at the moment thanks very much karen been good to chat with you today it's wonderful to meet you thank you